Welcome to From the Booth, a podcast where we talk about the film streaming at BYU's International Cinema. This is our fourth podcast of winter semester 2021. I'm Mark Yamada, co-director of International Cinema, and I'm joined today by the producer of our podcast, Dewey Walter, who is a graduate student in comparative studies at BYU. Hello, Dewey. Hi, Mark. How's it going? Pretty good. Dewey, you study film and you study Chinese film, but you actually lived in Hong Kong for a couple of years. And so you have some interesting things to say about one of our films this week, which is Denise Ho Becoming the Song. This is directed by Sue Williams in English and Cantonese, and it deals with canto pop superstar Denise Ho and her position in the Hong Kong pro-democracy movements. Denise Ho Becoming the Song is part of a series on protest and revolution, including the Battle of Algiers and Children of the Revolution, also playing this week. So, Dewey, the current movement in Hong Kong is a response to a bill that would have allowed extradition of Hong Kong citizens to mainland China. Now, of course, Hong Kong is uh, identified as a special administrative region of China, and so China does have some control over it. But these kind of encroachments on people's rights get them a little bit nervous, right, about uh, somehow being exposed to the legal system of mainland China, Kind of undermining their autonomy and their civil liberties. And it's kind of interesting that Denise Ho has emerged as kind of an unlikely activist, right? I mean, it seems to be that there's kind of a pop culture element to this protest a little bit. And so maybe in some ways she's kind of fitting as an activist here. But talk a little bit about Denise Ho and her background, if you don't mind. Yeah, as the... Um... As the film makes clear, Denise Ho is was originally born in Hong Kong, but her family decided to leave Hong Kong to Montreal in Canada. She found that she really loved singing and that growing up in Hong Kong, her main star and the person who is credited most with the creation of the genre of canto pop was Anita Moy. Anita Moy's influence in the genre and influence in Hong Kong pop culture is hard to understate. She's massive both in music and in film. She starred in films by directors such as Stanley Kwan, major, major art films, as well as popular films. So Denise always looked up to this this figure of Anita Moy, and she always wanted to become her. But as Denise found, being Anita isn't really what she wanted. What she wanted was to carve out her own voice, right? One who was interested in social issues. Part of this stems from Denise's own background or identity as a lesbian. Right. Part of what Denise is doing as a pop star is using her identity to push for changes in legislation on homosexual marriages and acts in Hong Kong. As of now, in recording this in early 2021, gay marriage still isn't legal in the special administrative region, and the government seems to not be budging on this at all. So what the movie does is that it shows how social movements for things such as gay marriage also blend into larger movements, larger democracy movements, right? Um, like yeah. with 2019. Right. And that's kind of interesting to note, as you say, because it's not simply just about this pro-democracy movement that's going on, that there are other kind of movements that are feeding into this, right? Particularly with Denise Ho. And 
like you mentioned, LGBTQ activism, right? That, yeah, it, it has this kind of weird blending in. And you kind of wonder if the demographics are the same, if if the people, you know, who are the activists kind of overlapping here in these different areas? And is it this general pro-rights movement, uh, social justice and a democracy movement that's kind of blended together here a little bit? Yeah, and you kind of see this in the expansion of the movement. So as you pointed out earlier, the extradition bill in Hong Kong was the thing that sparked the movements in the summer of 2019. The birth of this movement really comes from what's called the Umbrella Movement of 2014. Right. Um, So I was there in Hong Kong during this time and received a lot of emails from people back in America saying they're really worried about me, right? Because <laughs> this caught this caught the eye of international news media because what was happening was that China changed legislation so that elected officials in Hong Kong were going to be handpicked by the government in China, then voted on by citizens in Hong Kong, right? Right. So you don't get a vote for whoever you want, you get a vote for whoever they want, right? Right, and and that's another kind of encroachment. I think this is an important thing to point out is that what Hong Kongers are kind of upset about is that when there was this handover, right, of Hong Kong kind of British control to China, that there was an agreement that for 50 years, China would respect Hong Kong's liberties and rights. And yet there's these kind of small little encroachments every now and, and then that make people nervous, that threaten their autonomy to a certain extent. Yeah. In an interview, Sue Williams, the director of Denise Ho Becoming the Song, has said that what we consider as special rights in Hong Kong are very regular rights everywhere else, such as freedom of assembly, freedom of press, freedom of speech. These are seen as special in Hong Kong, but really internationally, we think of these as very basic human rights. Right. Yeah. And there's kind of a history of, I mean, you mentioned a a few kind of aspects of protest in Hong Kong in in recent years. There's a history of of protesting in Hong Kong, and maybe you can speak a little bit to that. Yeah. Under British colonial rule, there were many, many protest movements. Uh, Most notably in 1967, there was a series of bombing threats throughout the city. This was a very, very major thing, and it kind of became popularized in pop culture with films using themes from this, such as uh, Jackie Chan's police story, which has a narrative in it about a bomb threat called into a mall. So it's something that people still remember, right? That there was this ire against colonial rule of Britain, which has then evolved into ire against what they now see as colonial rule of China, right? And many old Hong Kongers have pointed out that the the young kids in these new movements sometimes will wave British flags and things. Mm. And the old people in Hong Kong have said, if we think that going back to British rule is good, then rule under China must be really, really bad, right? (laughs) Um, Because there's this whole movement before, but now people look back with a little bit of rose-tinted glasses and say, Oh, it was so good under Britain, even though in reality, it was it was very much not. Right. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting. I mean, as you mentioned, all these protests, I mean, they're generally kind of pro-democracy, anti-communist movements. And yet there's a certain ambivalence in the states and outside of Hong Kong towards the protesters. I mean, there's support there. 
But there's been, you know, over the summer, there were high profile celebrities in some ways actually criticizing, you know, the protesters. And so it's kind of a strange way in which they're not being supported at the same time, really fighting this it almost seems like this this battle alone, right? Because they don't really have the support of obviously mainland China. And even in Taiwan, I think Denise Ho has been criticized and attacked for certain things. And so it becomes this kind of, maybe it's galvanized, maybe a Hong Kong identity a little bit. Does that ring true that there's a sense of uh, we're coming together under, you know, the whole umbrella movement became this thing where they were using umbrellas to shield themselves from from uh, tear gas. And they've kind of etched out identity as other to mainland China and other to Britain and their own, and not really kind of a nation, but their own cultural location. Yeah, Hong Kong's interesting in terms of colonial rule because... It really was very, very empty, as in basically nobody lived there before the the British claimed the island, right? right? So it's not exactly that Britain was lording over a area full of people, right? They basically built it up from nothing. So Hong Kong was birthed under colonial rule and it has always been under colonial rule, right? Right, they right. never fully ruled themselves. Right. Um, so this gives them a really unique placement in terms of colonialism, right? Yeah. Um, because most every other country we talk about in terms of imperialism and colonialism was one that was, was uh, lived in and used before that. Right. right? Yeah. So in some ways, the protests are a way of defining themselves to a certain degree. It's interesting how you have, and I was mentioning earlier on, that pop culture becomes kind of a natural medium or language for activists, right? Particularly here, obviously, Denise Ho being the singer and a lot of her songs have kind of become anthems, right, for mm-hmm. uh, for the protests. Um, you also have Bruce Lee's Be Like Water, which is some, another mm-hmm. kind of slogan that the protesters have adopted in their attempt to resist, right, the forces. It's interesting that there's there's not really a leader to the group. It's more this, this mass movement. But speak a little bit, if you can, about maybe pop culture and its its role in the the movement. Obviously, this is a film that we're showing, and so we're and it's in in some ways a, a film about music, and it's about Denise Ho's musical career. And so we're getting kind of the protests through her music and and kind of filtered through pop culture. Yeah. So. Sue Williams, the director, was introduced to Denise Ho in 2017. And I think they started filming in 2018 Mm. um, and continued to film into 2019. So what she set out to do during this basically kind of a lull in the protest movement was to really examine an artist who had been basically blacklisted in mainland China. How does Denise Ho continue to be a pop star, right? When right. your major market, the the brunt of all the money that you're going to make has dried up and international brands like Lancome have basically abandoned you because of your movement, uh, your, your participation in the 2014 movements. Right. Um, so the film set out to interpret Denise Ho's songwriting as a pop star and examine how she was going to continue to do basically her her job. So the film sets out to do that, but what they quickly realized was that they were filming 
and continued to film into a, a moment that was much, much larger than right. just something about her songs. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think that it puts the film in a different light when you look at it that way, because Kino Lorber, the distributor, they mostly marketed the film as a protest film. Mm. And it is that, but it's also not just that. Right. Yeah. I would encourage people who watch it to really pay attention to the parts where they are showing Denise's lyrics on screen because that's what the film set out to do and it continues to do, but it really shows the power in pop culture as like a galvanizing thing as a, as an identifying force, but behind which everybody can come together. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So the first time I watched this film, I thought, Oh, there's these concert parts, but you can kind of just, just listen to it and it's fun and, and whatever, but really I'm here for her, you know, her descent. Yeah, But I think watching the film again, I've seen that her music plays a much larger role, both in terms of her personality and in terms of the reception of her, right? right. That celebrities, celebrities who, who um, use their position for good often only do it when it's uh, advantageous to them. Right. Whereas Denise Ho is somebody who she's always been like that. Mm. Um, and that this isn't a flash in the pan. She didn't just post a thing on her Instagram stories one time, right? She's, she's on the front lines and she's been writing about protests basically her entire career. Yeah. I mean, she's out there in the streets, right? And she's part of the protests, right? With the people. And so that's what makes it very, I mean, she's in kind of full activist mode. It seems like she's made that transition. You talk about the the interesting timing of the documentary of having kind of the, the cultural climate change as the documentary is being made, like you mm-hmm. said, kind of first about her really more about her her musical career and then shifting to cover this developing activism, right, that's happening, which is interesting because you think about maybe the limitations of the full-length documentary medium, right, that takes a couple of years to put together that in many ways shows like Vice that are, you know, television shows now, it seems like mm-hmm. they're able to kind of capture the moment, right, mm-hmm. a little bit better than a documentary in which, which is covering events that are still kind of evolving, as we go. And you see that in this documentary a little bit. I think they do a good job of blending and giving context and background to the movements and making them part of the story of her music a little bit. But it's tricky, like you said. I mean, it's hard to make documentaries when the culture is changing. Yeah. And in their case, when it's an ongoing movement, when do you stop filming? Right. 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 That That was something I noticed when I first watched the film was that it was released at the very end of July of 2020, just went straight to video on demand because theaters were closed. But just a few days prior on June 30th, the legislative body in China passed the national security law, right? Right. Which fundamentally changed the game in terms of their power to arrest people and their power to fight dissent or rioters, or basically classify anyone that they they see as a political enemy, um, right. they can arrest them, right? Almost without any interference internationally, and certainly not within Hong Kong because they control it. So the documentary came out in a way almost a few days too late. 
because everything has changed since the pass of the national security law. And that's what I think is really interesting about this film is that it captures a very specific moment. It doesn't capture a movement. It only captures a moment within that movement, right? Right, Because it's, it's very much still ongoing, but as a filmmaker, you need to stop at some point, right? Not every documentary can be Showa and it can be eight hours long or whatever, right? That you need to make these decisions about how long your film needs to be, what your film is actually about, like how much does Denise Ho actually have to do with the national security law, right? Right. And those kinds of decisions, I think, make this film really, really interesting as a as a cultural artifact. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And it kind of leads to the question of what's the best medium to capture revolutionary protest events. You know, mm-hmm. we have other other films playing this week. Battle of Algiers, for example, was shot, I think, four or five years after the Battle of Algiers ended. Mm-hmm. And and it was still fresh. And they and they kind of mix in some kind of documentary styles, but it's it's fictional as well. And of course, Children of Revolution is a is a documentary, but in some ways it's easier when the you know when the event is ended, right? And you can kind of present it in its kind of wholeness, right? When you have something ongoing like this, it becomes tricky in terms of when you're gonna start and and I think it seems like documentary filmmakers have to be nimble, right? You see this a lot in documentaries mm-hmm. where they're they're like, well, this happened, and so we're going to shift our attention here, and and these, but it kind of creates that sense of kind of ongoing life, right, and ongoing events, and and you get that here. I mean, it's tricky because you have, you know, you have a two-hour documentary that is supposed to give you a story about her, and the story is still continuing. So, yeah, yes. and, and what do you do when? the story continues to evolve. And the other thing, as, as you mentioned, like what is the best medium for telling these kinds of stories? Is it just at a certain point, it just becomes social media, right? right. So much of the film is footage taken from, you know, regular people who were filming things at the protests, right? We have images of, of that young teenager being shot in Kowloon, right. and that, that was something that is certainly not filmed by the film crew, right? right. Um, and tons of these protest things that we see are filmed just on people's phones, right? So then where is the position of documentary in terms of writing history yeah. that is basically using found footage, right? Yeah. It's very new found footage. It's not, it's not like we uncovered this old Nazi film canister and we restored it and here's interesting things that we found out about whatever right 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 this is, right it's very live um, yeah it's live and it's crowdsourcing and and even the protests yeah, themselves like, like denise talks about i mean they're kind of this this grassroots crowdsourcing kind of thing where they instead of being able to go to venues and have music festivals anymore they're they're raising money on their own right and they're, mm-hmm. and they're in, the, in the streets and and so there's this kind of bottom-up way of, of putting this documentary together that in some ways, like you said, reflects this grassroots bottom-up way of even the, the protest movements themselves. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like the, the film reflects the way that Denise has continued to act as an artist. Right. Blacklisting, basically. Yeah. And that's really interesting that she was in some ways 
you know, as a canto pop star, almost this kind of manicured Asian pop stars are often kind of created mm-hmm. by larger production companies and they'll, they'll scout out people who have the right image and then they'll create this persona and this image and it'll just be marketed, right, wide. And you get a little bit of that in her early work, but then she's really come into her own and become this voice, right? She has claimed her own voice. And I think maybe what, what I really liked about this is that you know, you think of Hong Kong as this liminal place of, of in between China, of in between the West, and and it finally gets its voice, kind of like Denise finally gets her voice a little bit, right? And it's in it's coming together as we were talking about earlier, as developing a national identity through resistance, right? In a certain way, so yeah, yeah, that's right. It's national identity through opposition, right? That you need something from which to oppose or a position from which to oppose in order to define yourselves, right? Right, right. And that, it was British colonial rule, and now it is Chinese rule. Um, And for Denise, it, you know, she had to position herself against those Canto pop stars who came before her, even the ones that she looked up to. She needed to differentiate herself. Yeah, I mean, it really sheds new light on the, on the you know, becoming the song or, or finding the song, right? This idea of finding voice through protests, through music, through all these things is really reflected in the larger nation as it is in her career. So mm-hmm. really great documentary. I'd recommend it to anyone who's interested in, in Asian pop music in protest movements and anything and kind of current cultural movements going on right now. All right. Thank you, Dewey, for joining us today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us today on From the Booth. Tune into our podcast each week for insightful discussion of the film streaming at IC by specialists who will be joining us on our podcast this semester. Our podcast is produced by the International Cinema Program at BYU and supported by the BYU College of Humanities. We are solely responsible for the opinions and ideas expressed here as they do not represent any official position adopted by the university or its supporting institutions. As always, we thank our producer, Dewey Walter, our sound engineer, Marina Hegstrom-Pratt, as well as the staff at the BYU Humanities Resource Center for their help and support. We would also like to acknowledge the musical talents of Professor Greg Stallings and his son, Johnny, who are responsible for our great outro and intro music. Until next week, keep streaming. Thank you.